1: Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that. And you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcast. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash mi packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash M I starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard, T H E R O B E R T L E O N A R D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, Pomp and I finish our conversation for this two-part series all about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and the history of money. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I highly recommend you go listen to that one before you start listening to this one. For today's episode, we dive right into the conversation where we left off last week.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: And I think that's a perfect example of where traditional financial education almost comes in back to hurt us because. When you think about it, in school, everyone's taught that volatility is the way to quantify risk. So when you see this type of volatility, your mind, it's all you studied for four, six, eight years, and you just automatically think risk, where really risk is you know Bitcoin going to zero, not necessarily the volatility. The volatility introduces opportunity, just like you said.
2: And like here, here's a great thing. So I've got the pleasure of, you know I talked to a lot of people way, way smarter than me who have decades of experience across macroeconomics and investing. And I always ask them kind of little questions to try to just pull the, the real core of what makes them great, right? And one of the things that I think I have come to understand, which I did not understand before, was one, the best investors seek out volatility. They actually run to the volatility because volatility means opportunity. If something just stays stable, like the dollar, and it's pretty stable all the time, there's not that much opportunity to find dislocations in the market. You need volatility to drive returns. So that's kind of lesson one. The second lesson is the very best investors. A friend of mine uh, recently told me, the very best investors are only right 55 to 60% of the time. So if you think about that, you're like, wow, that's a pretty low number, right? I would have thought they were right 90% of the time. But they're only right 55 to 60% of the time. The average investor is wrong more than they're right. But the reason why these billionaire investors can make so much money is they only make bets when there's a lot of asymmetrical return profile. And what I mean by that is they'll enter an investment that they say, okay, I have the potential to lose 20% of my money. Everything goes absolutely horrible. Like the worst, worst, worst case scenario, I can lose 20% of my money. But if it works how I think it's going to work, I will 5X my money. So 20% downside, 500% upside they will do that deal all day long because it's asymmetric. The payoff is much higher than the risk. And there's capped risk on the bottom side. So if you're only right 55% of the time, the 55% of the time you're right, you make so much money that it more than makes up for the 45% of the time that you're wrong. And I think that a lot of investors are really told kind of this camp of, hey, go seek safety. Go seek the things that are really easy. Now, I actually think that's good advice for 90 plus percent of people. Like, You're not a macro investor. You don't understand nor have the time to analyze all of these super asymmetric kind of nuanced investment ideas. So your best bet is just use the trend, right? Go save in the S&P, which is compounded at 8 or 9% a year for 50 years. That's much easier and much more peace of mind. But the best people, the professionals, the people who kind of really make a lot of money, they seek out those highly volatile asymmetric opportunities because they know what the risk on the downside is. And it's so attractive from a risk-reward standpoint that they can't help themselves.
1: Is there any way that you've learned, either yourself or talking to these great investors that you do talk to, to help someone who's a millennial listening to the show to deal with the volatility? They're interested in this topic. They're passionate about it. They want to learn about it. They're reading the books. They're listening to the podcast. They know they want to be involved with these types of assets. They don't want to just dump it in the S&P 500, but they're just new to all the volatility. How can they cope with that? What is the best way to deal with that?
2: There's two big ideas that I share with people, right? The first is like, what are the secrets to getting rich? And this is always the disappointing part of the conversation, which is there's four rules. Spend less than you make, have multiple streams of income, get out of inflationary assets into deflationary assets, and then be super patient and disciplined and use time to your advantage, especially if you're a young person. Compounding growth is your friend, all that kind of stuff. So those four rules, literally you can pick up any personal finance book and they're in there but that's why they're in there, right? It's because they work and it's almost too boring. So I think that's important to to kind of take away. Now, when it comes to the volatility, what I tell people is the best investors in the world don't look at the price every day. Most of them are actually not looking at the price. And the people who do look at the price every day have computers doing the trading for them. So they're they're quant funds. If you think of whether it is Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, any of these guys, they're all super long-term thinkers. And what they'll do is they'll spend the time, they will make an investment decision based on the thesis that they've double and triple checked and they've done all their work on. They have conviction in the idea. They'll put the investment on and they walk away. They don't look at the price every day. And now what that requires is something that our society is not very good at, is you have to have the discipline to do the work up front. And you have to have the conviction, even if the trade goes against you at first, to really have a belief that this is going to work. But then what you've got to do is there's a power in not getting caught up in the panic on the way down or the FOMO on the way up and being disciplined. And so there's a lot of books, I think, around like uh, investing psychology. But really, Bill Perkins told me, he said, uh, investing is a psychology game. Right, it's a psychology test, and I think a lot of people. If you can remind yourself of that every day, take a deep breath, get away from the screen. Like, don't worry about it. Right, like the stock market. It cracks me up. You turn on some of these uh, investing shows. Oh my God, the stock market is down two percent, and I'm like two percent. Like, <laughs> I thought you were. You guys were acting like it was down hundred percent. Right, like two percent is not a big deal. And so I think that. That comes with patience and maturity and, and experience, but, but I do think that that's probably the number one way to deal with volatility is don't subject yourself to it because you as a human are flawed and you will kind of succumb to the emotion and the, uh, the, the lack of psychological control that every human has.
1: I agree completely. I think thinking long-term is the best way to get rid of that volatility. I mean, I'm looking at the, the chart of Bitcoin right now, only over a month. I mean, that's not long-term by any means. And it doesn't look volatile, really. But if you know, you zoom in, and it of course does, and if you zoom out even more, then it looks even less volatile. So, But the problem is a lot of people, a lot of younger people, they, they want it right away. And so they start to day trade, or they start to do these short-term trades, and now you're watching it every day. And now your emotions now every day your emotions are at you rather than every couple months when you're looking at your at your portfolio so yeah i mean i think the best thing you can do take a step back stop looking at your you know your portfolio if you want to learn about this stuff every day i think studying it reading books that's great do that every single day just don't open your fidelity account every day or don't open your vanguard account every day that's going to hurt you
2: Look, I've been there. I, I usually don't tell this story, but when I was in college, I came back from the military and I'd made a little bit of money in the army and, uh, and I started day trading and I was day trading foreign currencies. And I think I turned like $9,000 at one point into like 70 grand. And I literally thought I was going to be, you know, the, the biggest gangster on Wall Street, right? And I was like, and I'm going to do it from the classroom in college. I had a whole system and, and, and frankly, I probably was more sophisticated than most in, in what I was doing. And then I got cocky, and I literally started trading on my phone or whatever, and, and I started to lose money. Thankfully, I ended up walking away and being like, hey, you know, I made enough money, I probably should stop doing this. But I definitely didn't you know, make seven times my money like, like I had originally had. And so with that, what that taught me was there's some people who are traders. They've got the skill for it. They're, they're very educated in it. They've got experience. They, they like doing it. I'm not one of those people. And so if you're not somebody who wants to day trade or has a skill for day trading, you have to understand what you're good at, right? It's kind of like when you play sports, some people are really good at playing basketball. They're 6'6". Of course, they're better you know, positioned to play basketball they're probably not as good at soccer because their footwork sucks. And so you got to understand kind of what you're, you're set up to do. And so what that then means is if you're not a day trader, what can you do? And really, there's two key lessons, I think, for investors that over time, you learn. One is asset allocation may sometimes actually be more important than the individual investments you make. And what I mean by that is, simply being in the right markets regardless of the exact investment you make can actually make up for a lot of mistakes so if you sit down and you say hey i want 10% of my assets in real estate i want 20% in the stock market i want 30% in bonds you know whatever it is that decision may be more important than which stocks do i buy right because you know look in the recent days of the stock market everything went up like it was pretty hard to lose money in the stock market when it goes up 20% and so I think that asset allocation doesn't get enough kind of focus. There's a great book uh, by Dave Swenson, who's uh, the CIO at Yale around asset allocation and portfolio construction that I highly recommend people read about that. The second thing is a lot of people forget that investing, the price at which you buy an asset largely determines the return that you're going to drive. And so you could buy the same asset, right? If you and I look at a house, let's say a piece of real estate, and I buy it at $200,000 and you buy it at $300,000, but in five years, it's worth $300,000. I made all the money because I bought it at 200K, not because the house ended up being worth 300K. Same example, but let's say it's worth $400,000 you made a hundred grand right? because you bought it at 300 and sold it at 400. But since I bought it at 200 and sold it at 400, I made double the money you made. It's simply because I bought it at a better price. And so I think that that applies to every single asset class. And a lot of people get kind of caught up and that's the FOMO aspect of this is like, oh my God, it's running. I, I got to invest. If you can be patient and understand, if I buy at the right price, I control my emotions, I only invest when there's very high asymmetry. Hey, this is going to go up a lot and not down that much. And in, in the worst case, that's really the way that you make money. The hard part is when you're young, you think that you're you know, the next day trader, right? You, you, you literally think you're going to put you know, $1,000 in and you're going to walk away a millionaire. And, and there's a reason why a lot of people don't do that because it's super hard to do. It's
1: so funny you share that story because that's how I got into investing as well. I wasn't in Forex, but I was in day trading. You may be familiar with Timothy Sykes, but he, he had Facebook ads and that's what kind of drew me in. And I thought I was going to be a day trader. And I almost say I was lucky that I didn't ever make any money because then I didn't continue to, to do it. And I quickly found Warren Buffett and you know, ended up where I am today. But yeah, it's funny. I started down the exact same path. And I'll definitely put links to David Swenson's books in the show notes. I definitely agree that those are good reads. Now, I'd say it's probably pretty clear that you're bullish on Bitcoin, but what would someone on the other side of the argument say? What are the bears saying about Bitcoin?
2: You've already touched on a, on a number of the things. I, I would say, first of all, they would say bitcoin's not backed by anything from the bitcoin perspective like neither is the us dollar to some degree or another kind of response to that would be it's actually backed by the most secure largest computer network in the world but definitely one of the arguments is like bitcoin's not backed by anything another argument is if you don't believe it's a currency, but you look at it as an asset, it's a non cash producing asset. So, a lot of people who don't like gold, for example, don't like Bitcoin because it doesn't produce anything. There are people that understand digital currencies that would say, hey, it's not as fast. It's kind of got technical challenges compared to other things. So, there's definitely people who think the technical components of it are more important than, let's say, the belief or the monetary policy. We already talked about that. I would say there's a lot of people who just say, look, you guys might be completely right, but the government will never allow it. Just like, like I'm, I'm such a status like the government's going to come in and stop all this nonsense, right like stop with the child's play. And so I think that that's definitely a detraction. And then lastly, I think that there's a lot of people who just say, look, it's unproven or it's super volatile, right? A lot around kind of the lack of stability or long track record. And I frankly, I think that there's merit there in the sense of, yes, that is true, but that's also why the opportunity exists, right? And so I always kind of say, like, if you take each one of those detractions, and you almost put an equal weighting on them, and if those things are disproven, then there is increase in value and because the opportunity is de-risked and therefore more people desire this asset. That's ultimately what the opportunity is, right? So if you believe that those things aren't actually risks while well, everyone else does, and you get comfortable and you go ahead and buy something. If in fact those things end up not being risks in the future, and then those people are convinced, okay, I should go ahead and do this, you benefit from having believed or taken the risk before everybody else. Now again, there's risk. And so one of those things may end up actually being, whether it's fatal or, or just a large obstacle to overcome. And so I think that's where people have to remember like, that's the beauty of markets. You take risk to get reward, but that doesn't come without the risk, right? And I think the recent market downturn, in the stock market, people kind of, you know, especially younger people, like their whole lives, the stock market just went up. It was awesome, right? It's just like you could buy pretty much anything and it just went up. They kinda of got reminded, Wait a minute, I just lost thirty percent of my money. Like that was scary. And so you gotta understand the risk you're obviously taking, but but if you make smart investments, then that's the reward that you can capture.
1: Yeah. I talk about that a lot on the show because, and even myself included, most of the people that listen to the show and me, we've only invested in a bull market. I was too young to invest in 2007, 2008, 2009. So everything since then has been pretty great, like you said. It's so, been
2: fantastic.
1: Yeah. It it really doesn't get much better than that. So I think it's it's been a really big wake-up call for a lot of people. And I, I think that was a great point. But you mentioned government regulation. What if the government does try to step in?
2: So we have... Some precedent for this. A lot of people don't know in 1933, the government banned ownership of gold, right? So they literally stepped in and said, hey, if you own gold, give it up. United States citizens are not allowed to own gold. I won't get into kind of all the details, but it's important to know that that happened. And so there's some people who believe, hey, look, if Bitcoin really kind of became something much more material than it is today, the government would do the same thing. The difference is that in today's digital world, if one government steps in and says, we are going to outlaw or ban this, especially if it was the United States, if every other country said, well, we're not going to ban it, all of a sudden you would put massive risk on a US dollar denominated global reserve currency. And What I mean by that is take Russia, China, for example they hate the dollar system. They hate the fact that the US dollar is the global reserve currency. It's, quote unquote, expensive to them is the, is the word that they normally use. And it's expensive from two reasons. One, you literally, one of your adversaries in many cases, controls the currency that you're using for international trade. You don't like that, right? They kind of can manipulate the currency. They can do all kinds of things that, that screw around with you and you're not in control. So you don't like that. The second thing is, they can sanction you. So they can say, hey, that's our currency. If you're a bank and you allow anyone from China or Russia or North Korea, they actually do this. Anyone from North Korea who uses dollars through your bank, if you do business with them, we're going to basically kick you out or arrest you or do whatever. So what ends up happening is if the US government stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to ban Bitcoin, immediately, I think many of those other countries would say, wait a minute, there's a currency that we could use that they can't manipulate and they won't let anyone use from their country. We should adopt that right now so we can get off their system. And so there's some game theory at play. There are people way smarter than me who have spent way more time thinking about kind of how all that game theory plays out. But if you just Google around kind of government ban ownership, Bitcoin, whatever, you'll find a bunch of pieces people have written. But ultimately, what it comes down to is one country's loss would be another country's gain. And therefore, the belief is that it would be very, very difficult for them to ban it as an individual country. That parlays into well, what if they all ban it together? And I always joke and say, if you're betting on you know, Russia, China, the United States, India, et cetera, all working together, I got a bridge to sell you and a whole bunch of other stuff because there's just a very, very low likelihood of that happening. Yes, it's possible, but there's a lot of other things I'd bet on before, uh, global coordination between uh, th- those superpowers.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that because I was, I was going to say the exact same thing is I've read that, and I haven't read a ton about it, but one of the things I did read is that every country in the world would have to essentially ban it at the same time in order for it to not work for all the reasons that you just said. But if just the US did ban it, could it just be as simple as somebody in the US maybe getting a VPN and still transacting with Bitcoin that way?
2: it's kind of like prohibition, right? Like they banned alcohol, didn't really stop people from drinking. Now, did it make it more dangerous? Yes. Did it definitely kind of dampen the interest in some subsets of the population? For sure. But ultimately, the war on drugs eh, probably hasn't been as effective as uh, as people think it has, right? It's actually kind of changed the dynamics of that market. And, and many people would argue actually the price would drop if they legalized it, right? Rather than kind of you know, artificially inflated prices because it's illegal. And so I think that there is definitely this idea that to access Bitcoin, all you need is an internet connection, and that's a very powerful idea. I think the government, if they actually went to the extreme of banning ownership, would definitely take the extreme steps to try to, you know, shut down U.S.-based exchanges. I mean, like they would go pretty extensive to make sure that it was enforced. For those reasons, though, another, you know, that's kind of another whole argument as to why they won't do it, and it, it really just comes down to like, what's the opportunity cost, right? If you spend so much time doing this, like. You pretty much are admitting that you think Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar as a global reserve currency. And like many in the Bitcoin community would kind of argue like, well, we already won at that point. And so I, I, look, we're, we're far away from any of that ever even entering the conversation or kind of really being taken ser- seriously. It may become a, a serious conversation at some point. I just think it's unlikely
3: to happen. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
3: this is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show.
1: So I recorded a two-part episode all about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency with Preston not too long ago. And after that episode aired, a lot of people were really interested in it. They really liked the conversation, but a lot of them had questions about how to actually buy crypto assets and how to do it safely. So I want to have a quick tactical conversation with you for someone who's never purchased a cryptocurrency before, what are the steps? How do they do it? Where do they start? And what is the finish line? How do, how do they go through that process?
2: So there's a couple of different ways that they can do it. The first thing I would say is like, don't go buy any of material size in your portfolio until you've educated yourself. Like that To me, like that's step one. The second step I actually tell them is once you know enough to say to somebody else what Bitcoin is, you should go buy $50 or $100. And the reason you should do that is one, you're going to get the actual experience and the going through the product. Holding the Bitcoin, maybe even send it to somebody, like actually using it, right? It's kind of like if I tell you, hey, there's this thing called TikTok. Yeah, maybe I can explain it to you, but until you use it, you don't actually know what it is. Same thing with Bitcoin, but $50 to $100, if you absolutely completely screw up, like it's not going to you know, make or break you. And then you've got skin in the game. You still have $50 or $100 in Bitcoin, like you're going to pay attention, right? Like, hey, what's going on with Bitcoin? I got my 100 bucks. I got a brother who's 23 and literally he started out, he bought $100 and like looked at it almost every day, right? And was like, hey, what's going on here? And so I think that's kind of step one. Step two is you can get exposure really in two main ways. You can go buy Bitcoin itself, similar to how you could buy gold, or you could go buy the equivalent of a gold ETF, which in Bitcoin is a publicly traded stock that has direct exposure to Bitcoin. So in the public market, you could buy something called GBTC. It's the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. I have 100% of my retirement account in GBTC. So I can't actually hold Bitcoin itself in my retirement account, so I had to buy a public stock that has direct exposure to Bitcoin. So that's kind of one path to, to pursue. The second path, and the path that I suggest for most people listening to this is to sign up for a cryptocurrency exchange. There's a ton of them in the United States. so we can go down online. we can say uh, Gemini, Coinbase, Kraken, BlockFi, et etc. They're usually pretty reputable. They've got millions of customers. They've been around for a long time. They've got kind of venture capital type backers. Like these are the legitimate exchanges that are very popular. They're popular for a reason. Kind of the community has vetted them as being real. If you're looking at an exchange and you ask somebody that is familiar with crypto if they've ever heard of it and they say no, don't use it, (laughs) it's kind of a, a good rule. And when you go on, it's just like you know, signing up for a Robinhood account or a Venmo account or anything else. Go in, create an account. Um, they might do some verifying of who you are. And then you're basically uh, able to put dollars in and convert those to Bitcoin. So you go on an exchange and literally, uh, just like buying a stock, say, hey, I want some Bitcoin. The difference is with stocks, traditionally, you have to buy one share. So let's say, you know, if Amazon's trading at $2,000, you have to spend $2,000 to get a share. You can't say, I want $100 of Amazon on most platforms. With Bitcoin, you can actually buy fractional ownership. So you can go buy a dollar of Bitcoin, $20, or $8,500 to get a whole Bitcoin. So whether you go on the exchanges uh, or whatever exchange you end up choosing, that's really what, what you've got to do is just figure out how much dollars do I want to put in, and then you get the fractional ownership of that Bitcoin.
1: You mentioned Robinhood, and I'm glad you did because I wanted to ask you about that. A lot of people, especially millennials, want to use Robinhood to buy Bitcoin. And I've heard that that might not be the best thing to do. So why might Robinhood not be the best thing to buy Bitcoin?
2: The three biggest issues that I see people have with, certain, with any exchange is one, what are the fees that I'm charged? So there's some exchanges that just have egregious, hey, it's uh, 2% every time you buy, there's better exchanges. So don't waste your money on those high fees. Two is they might have a spread. So, what that means is that they're buying Bitcoin for $8,100, but they're selling it to you on the platform for $8,500. You don't know that that uh, exists unless you kind of read the documentation. And so, if that spread's really wide, you could go somewhere else and buy the Bitcoin for $8,100. And then three is there may be issues around kind of control or withdrawals. So a lot of people will say, there's a saying in the Bitcoin community called, not your keys, not your coins. And so if you go back to that example of when I deposit dollars in the bank, it's not my dollars anymore, right? I get an IOU. There's a lot of people in crypto, they believe in something called sovereignty. So I actually want to control it. There is a very technical process to getting access to your Bitcoin and actually holding it yourself so it's not in an exchange. Just Google around For kind of how to do that. And there's plenty of guides, but but I think that the withdrawal component can be a problem as well. So what that means is I buy on a platform, they won't let me pull out my full Bitcoin all at once, right? I gotta do it over five days or over two weeks or something. People obviously like to have kind of quick access to their assets. So that may be a third problem.
1: Yeah, I think it might be that last problem that you mentioned with Robinhood, because I've I've heard that you don't actually own the Bitcoin when you buy it on, on Robinhood. I don't think you can withdraw it and put it in your own wallet or things like that.
2: Okay. So there's two pieces to that then. If you can't ever withdraw, that is different than most exchanges. Most exchanges will allow you to buy it, and then you can withdraw it to your wallet, your digital wallet. And so again, you can Google to figure out how to do that. But if what they're doing is saying, oh, you don't own your Bitcoin, every single cryptocurrency exchange you go on, if you buy Bitcoin on there and don't withdraw it to a digital wallet, you do not own that Bitcoin. The exchange actually has control of the Bitcoin. Unless so you're trusting that exchange, that's mainly why I say go use the reputable ones. There have been examples in the past where There's kind of these no name exchanges. People go on there, they create an account, they put dollars in, they buy some Bitcoin, they leave the Bitcoin on the exchange, and then that exchange ends up being fraudulent. And so, what you want to do is you want to basically work with the reputable players, just like you wouldn't in the other market.
1: I've also heard that it's not necessarily the safest thing to publicly talk about which exchanges and wallets that you're using. Is that the case?
2: It's just like anything, right? You don't go around telling people how much money you have in your bank account. It's probably not a good idea. At the same time, most people don't want to tell people where they bank, right? Unless they're talking to friends kind of behind closed doors, similar thing. And then with Bitcoin, the other thing to understand is, is something called a bearer asset. What I mean by that is if I hack into your you know, Bank of America account and I steal your money, there's FDIC insurance. So first of all, Bank of America is going to give you the money. The government will back that up and they'll be able to catch me as a criminal and say, hey, you're going to jail, right? You, you stole in Bitcoin, what ends up happening is if I steal your Bitcoin, I have control of that Bitcoin, and they can't reverse the transaction. And so, the same thing applies if let's say you go to send a wire at your bank and you send it to the wrong the wrong account number. Well, Bank America goes, "Oh, we made a mistake." They call the bank, they send the money back, and then you kind of send to the right person, right? there's a system in a decentralized system. If you accidentally send me uh, Bitcoin, but you meant to send it to somebody else, I don't even know who you are. So I just got more Bitcoin, you know, all of a sudden on my hand. Thanks. Same thing here, and so I think that really what you want to do is, you know, one, look, it's scary at times, especially if you're sending any real amount of money in Bitcoin to make sure you're sending it to the right person, and you want to have control over uh, over those Bitcoin to make sure that there's no nefarious activity, no hacking, etc. And the biggest lesson here, I think, a lot of people in crypto learn this is many accounts that you have have something called two factor authentication on it. So two factor authentication basically is. I sign up with my email, I type in a password. If at any point I forget my password, they have my cell phone number on file, they'll text me a code, I can plug that in and I can recover my password. That text message with a code is the second, second factor of authentication in order to get into a system. What ends up happening is somebody can actually go and do something called a SIM swap, they can basically get control of your phone, and they can text themselves the number and get into the system without you ever knowing about it. And so what you want to do is you want to make sure you have two-factor authentication on. You just don't want to use your cell phone number. You either want to use an email or you want to use something like an Authy, which is an application that has two-factor authentication uh, that can't really be hacked into.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I did when I set up my account was I used a second app to create a code that produced that second factor authentication anytime I log into my exchange or my, my wallet.
2: It's the most valuable thing I can tell people. is Set up two-factor authentication and don't use your cell phone number.
1: Yeah. And, and the point you made about transferring between people and even yourself from the exchange to your wallet, it is, it is, it's nerve-wracking because you like you said, if you have one number off, one digit off, it's going to someone else and they won't know who gave it to them. And I mean, you're essentially out that money. So I remember when I first bought my first Bitcoin back in March and I was making that transfer from the exchange to my wallet, I was I was nervous to hit that send button. And then as I was waiting for it to do the transfer, I'm refreshing, 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 waiting for it to hit. And thankfully it did. So if you guys are going to buy anything, make sure 110%, 200% that you have the right information when you're doing the transfer. And I want to talk about the wallets. What is the difference between a digital and a physical wallet?
2: So well, there's a couple of things here. So when we talk about a digital wallet, what I really mean is it's a wallet or think of it as a bank account that holds digital assets, right? So whether it's Bitcoin, Ether, or anything else, it kind of holds these digital tokens or, or assets. When it comes to a physical storage device or a digital one, a physical storage device is almost of like a, uh, a USB stick. Right, like like it is a uh, an actual physical thing that you would put files. So you could put music on there. You could put your PowerPoint presentation, or you could put Bitcoin. Now it's a little bit over over generalization, but, but that's the general idea. And so you can literally take your Bitcoin from an exchange and put it onto a physical device in which it is highly secure because you have control over it. A digital wallet is similar, except for you're not keeping it in a physical device, you're keeping it in a piece of software that you and you alone have access to. So kind of think of it like your iTunes, right? You have music files, they're on your iTunes, no one else can access them except for if you give them the password. And so you know, newsflash, don't give anyone your password if you have a a digital wallet. But that's really kind of the difference between a digital wallet and a physical wallet. They hold the same assets, it's just different types of security and different personal preferences.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone,
0: it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
3: This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
0: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on road performance and commanding all terrain capability and combines assertive on road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at landroverusa.com. That's landroverusa.com. All right, back to the show.
1: So how does this entire conversation relate back to millennials and their investing? Do you think they should be allocating a portion of their portfolio to cryptocurrencies or are they better off sticking to More tried and true to assets like ETFs and stocks.
2: Forget Bitcoin for a second, just in general, as a philosophy. I talk to a lot of young people, and I'm 31 years old, about to be 32 years old. And I say that I've got four younger brothers, right? So they're probably the best example. And and I talk to each one of them, just kind of about the the mindset. So when you're in your 20s, especially, like there's two key things that I think everyone needs to understand. One is your greatest asset is time. Literally, if you do, you know, compounding interest. At 22 and 32 till you're 60, there's a massive difference, right? And like, I can't buy back that time. So there's this element of like compounding growth is your friend, and you need to leverage that to your advantage. The second piece of it is if I could go back to my 20s, and even now, it's take risk, right? Like all the things around that I was doing in my mid 20s and late 20s, I look back and I'm like, man, I could have lost everything and been perfectly fine. Right. And so it's almost like I should have taken more risk than I actually did from an investing standpoint. Today, you know, it, it's public knowledge, but I've got more than 50% of my net worth in Bitcoin. And the reason why I do that when, you know, I hear a lot of people, or actually, infamously, I was on CNBC and Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank literally said to me, I forbid you from doing that. And, and his whole thing was basically this idea of like, why would you ever take that much risk? And my logic behind it is, look, I'm 32 years old. I'm willing to take this risk till I'm 35. Right? So I had kind of an end date to the risk. And I'm also willing to lose 50% of my net worth on something that has a very asymmetric upside. But that also means that the other 50% of my portfolio is very not risky. And so I think people need to understand kind of the younger you are, the more compound growth is on your side, and also the more risk you can take because you have a longer period of time to make it back. It wouldn't make sense for somebody who's 70 to go put 50% of their net worth in Bitcoin, because they're basically, you know, look, if it doesn't work, you're screwed, right? And so I think those are the two key lessons for people. And obviously, Bitcoin kind of fits in that risky bucket still, but it should fit in kind of a more portfolio construction type mindset. It's not just, hey, should I buy Bitcoin or not? It really is kind of how should I actually construct my portfolio, philosophical standpoint.
1: And that goes back to the asset allocation point that we talked about before. It's, it's all about that asset allocation and allocating... A little bit more risky because we are younger. And, and that's exactly how I allocate my portfolio. I run a very concentrated portfolio. I talk about that a lot on the show. I'm okay with that risk. I'm okay with the volatility. I'm okay with the upside. I'm, I'm 25 years old. I have a long time you know, until I really need that money. So if it, if it goes down a lot, I have the time for it to come back. So yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to ask, you mentioned GBTC before And so, do you, is there any, when you buy a gold ETF, there are some risks in terms of owning that ETF because you're not actually owning the underlying gold. Is there similar risks and issues with owning GBTC? And also, you mentioned you have a lot of your net worth in Bitcoin. Do you mess with any other cryptocurrencies or are you strictly Bitcoin?
2: So, I own no other crypto other than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the only thing that I own. In terms of GBTC, there's a couple of key pieces. So one, there's definitely the risk like you described in like GLD, for example. You don't actually own the gold. You don't own the Bitcoin. The reason why, for example, I've done GBTC is, again, it's money in an IRA that I can't get exposure directly to Bitcoin. So this is kind of the next best thing. and allows me to do that in a tax advantage way. The one big risk that does come with GBTC, and it's a risk and an advantage, is there's a premium. So what you're actually doing is when you're buying GBTC in the public market, there is a premium. That premium can be two, five, 10%, or at times it's gone 50 plus percent. And so what you've got to be comfortable with is as long as that premium doesn't disappear, then you'll be okay. If for some reason, like let's say an ETL, Bitcoin ETF got approved and the premium for GBTC disappeared, there actually could be a loss, not in the fund, but if that premium goes away. If there's a 10% premium, it would show up as a 10% loss for you, even though the number of Bitcoin actually didn't change. So that premium can be a negative. Now, the positive is, if let's say you buy GBTC, it's got a 10% premium when you buy it, and then all of a sudden the premium goes to 50%, you actually benefit from there being an expansion of, of the premium. So almost like a multiple expansion versus a multiple contraction. And so I, I would say that's probably the biggest risk that I see a lot of people unaware of when they go to, to buy something like that. Again, because I'm buying it through an IRA, I'm comfortable with that risk, one. And then two is, it's in a tax advantage situation, so it makes a lot of sense for me to do that because I can't get exposure to a uh, the actual underlying Bitcoin itself.
1: I'm also a big real estate investor, and in that space, we talk about having SDIRAs a lot. So, self-directed IRAs where you can buy real estate, you can I thought you could buy cryptocurrencies, you could buy invest in startups. Is that a type of an account like a retirement account that you could potentially use instead of your IRA to buy Bitcoin directly?
2: There are definitely retirement accounts that are self-directed that you can do it in. The specific one that I have, I can't, and frankly, I'm not an expert on it and I don't even remember what the reasoning behind it is. I just remember that people uh, who are in charge of uh, telling me what to do said, You can't do that. So I said, Okay, well, what's the next best thing? But there are definitely accounts that you can um, buy directly exposure. It's obviously much easier to do outside of those retirement accounts than it is inside of the retirement accounts, given all the rules there. And then I think that there's actually even organizations that have been created where you like contribute your IRA contribution through their platform with the sole purpose of buying Bitcoin and like they're literally there to facilitate. It's like a Bitcoin IRA type thing. But I'm not too familiar with them. So so I can't say whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, but they definitely exist.
1: I'm sure you have a good panel behind you giving you great information to make your decisions. But Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing all your knowledge. I have loved this conversation. I know everyone in the audience is going to as well. A lot of people are part of our community on our Facebook group, and also that follow me on social media are big fans of you, and they were super excited for this episode to come out. So I know they're all going to love it as well. Where can the audience go to learn more about you?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun, and uh, I enjoy um, kind of talking about this stuff. So, So thank you. I would say the two places really are, if you go to uh, Twitter, I'm just at a Pompliano. And then uh, we've been pumping out a ton of videos on uh, YouTube, a lot of interviews and, and things like that. So if you just search my name, Anthony Pompliano on YouTube, you'll, uh, you'll find the channel and, and kind of watch all that content there as well.
1: I'll be sure to put links to all of his resources, everything he's got going on in the show notes. Be sure to go connect with him there. You guys will want to learn all the information that he's putting out there. Um, thanks so much.
2: Yeah, man. Listen, I really appreciate it, Robert. I love what you're doing, and uh, we'll do it again sometime.
1: All right, guys, that wraps up this two-part series with Pomp. Follow me on Instagram at the Robert Leonard, and that username is the Robert Leonard, or on Twitter with my username Robert at TIP. And let me know what you thought of these two episodes. I'd love to hear your feedback about the two-part series format. I'd love to know if you guys prefer longer episodes that are over an hour being split into shorter 30 to 40-minute episodes in a two-part series like this. If you guys like it, I'll be sure to do more of it in the future, and if not, we'll stick to the normal one-episode format, even if they're a bit longer. But that's all I had for this week's episode. I hope to see you guys again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP.